Hello everybody, welcome to the show. And today we're talking about getting yourself out there, specifically when it comes to comic conventions. Whether you're at a con to promote your own work or the work of others, it's vital to meet and greet as many fans as possible if you want to get them to invest in your creations. After all, you could be surrounded by hundreds of other tables all looking to do exactly what you're doing, meaning that you'll need to stand out. So what do you do to prepare? What steps can you take to make sure that folks stop at your table and take a chance on your work? And what's it like for those who work for publishers, pushing the work of others? How can you convince others to invest in the books that you love and know others would love just as much? In short, what makes a successful comic convention? My name's Matt Loon, and today on the show I'm joined by Sarah Ray and Katrina Chapman to talk about the pros and cons of Comic Cons. This is That's the Issue. I'm Sarah Ray. I'm a freelance book marketer slash editor slash publishing consultant. I do a bit of everything for indie publishers. Um, in the comics world, I work with Avery Hill, Liminal Eleven, and Breakdown Press. Um, I work for some other publishers as well. Um, I also do a little bit of everything. <laughs> um, I make comics myself, um, and also I, I work for Avery Hill Publishing too. Um, I do marketing for them and also a lot of odd jobs. Um, I do some stuff on the printing side as well and just whatever they need me to do. So yeah, it's a little bit of everything. Brilliant. Well, welcome both to the show. Thank you for joining me. I know um, I really appreciate uh, you taking time out of your evening to uh, to chat with me on the show. How was Thought Bubble? Because you were both there um, and I didn't get to see either of you. So firstly, I'm sorry for not actually seeing you for the first time because um, you were our first on my list to see and uh, I just didn't get around to it. It was an absolutely kind of mental festival, as I'm sure I'm sure you guys feel the same as well. Yeah, it's always like that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But how yeah. is it for you both as like being part of, um, you know, because you were both there, you had a few hats you were wearing. Like I know you, Sarah, you said you were, um, you know, skipping between a couple of tables and and Kat, you're obviously a creator as well as um, working for Avery Hill. Um, how does it feel to to kind of work for the festival in that fa- in that fashion? Um, for me, it was great fun. I and mean, this was my first time actually coming to Thought Bubble. Uh, I've worked MCM before, but I actually like went up with a publisher this year. Um, I ended up behind Liminal Eleven's table pretty much the whole time because it was just crazy busy. It was kind mm. of bigger than I expected it to be, but I thought it was the nicest comics festival I've been to so far. Not that I've been mm. to loads, but just a really <laughs> good crowd. And I like that it's much more kind of small press and indie creators, um, people like Kat. Um, I don't know. It was just an awesome vibe. Mm. Yeah, I I like I really like it as well. I've I've been quite a few times, ne- um, not like several years in a row, but just on off. Um, I've done a couple of years, and then I had a break, and then another few years, um, mostly just on my uh, selling my own stuff. Mm. Um, and in the last maybe the last three times I've been, I've been next to Avery Hill's table, which is really nice because we can kind of help each other out a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I it's much I. I found it a lot more fun um, 
I've always loved the festival, but I've enjoyed it a lot more once I've got to know loads of people and going, you know, with a publisher can be really nice because that can help you meet people. And, and then you don't feel like you're, you're in this massive place full of people and you kind of like don't know anyone. Yeah. So, yeah. We had a meal, we had a meal all of Avery Hill on the Friday night and that was, it's nice to do something on the Friday. Sometimes you're just kind of in a strange city <laughs> on your <Yeah>. own. <laughs> How how did you find it, Matt? Um, I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great. I felt the same as you. Like last year, I last year was my first year, and um, I didn't know that many people going into it. And so I met a few people when I was there. I uh, went for like lunch with a few people that, and like kind of meeting them for the first time. Um, but there's a lot of it. I don't know if you guys feel the same, but there's a lot of it where you're chatting to people for the first time. A, in real life, and B, like, seeing their faces for the first time. <laughs> There's so many people that I follow online that just have, like, animations for avatars or, like, kind of yeah. cartoons or even, like, sketches or, like, um, you know, really beautiful kind of drawings of themselves but still like it's very different to kind of go up to someone in real life and go hi <laughs> even people i've had on the show before like i've had people on the podcast and i was like hi we we spoke for about an hour we, we we you know we got to know each other quite well but i'm meeting you for the first time it's such a weird feeling isn't it yeah it, is weird. yeah. it was really nice though i mean there's all these people been emailing non-stop about publicity for years and i can finally put a face to it it's a really nice thing to do yeah, yeah. And so, Kat, were you there in a Avery Hill capacity or were you there with your own table this year? Um, I had my own table. I was next to them so I could kind of, um, you know, help them out a little bit. They could help yeah. me out. Um, and, yeah, okay, it's quite handy because if someone buys my book from them, I'm right there if they want to get it signed or something. Yeah. <laughs> Did you yeah. find yourself shouting over the t- to the table going, that one looks really good? <laughs> I'm always tempted to do that. <laughs> yeah. stand in front of my table going, wow, really loudly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and what about you then, Sarah? Was it um how do you for both of you really in like the Avery Hill kind of capacity, how do you prepare for a festival? How do you like what do you bring together? Like what how early do you start really preparing for a festival? Um well for us with Liminal Eleven, we I know we got it booked in over the summer and then I think it was August or September, I pitched a panel that we ended up doing about witchcraft and the occult. So I spent a good couple of weeks working on that. Uh, It was quite intense. It was really well attended though. So I was glad about that. Um, But in terms of the rest of the prep, we just uh, packed up the tablecloths and a few, um, I don't know what those things are called, the screen thing that you pull up and set up behind Oh, yeah. Um, and then we had about four yeah. huge suitcases full of books and tarot decks, which really uh, killed my back on the way up. We took the train. Um, yeah, I'm sure you had similar experiences. It's just absolute torture. But luckily, we sold most of it, so I didn't have to carry any of it back. Um, yeah, but that's a good yeah. thing. <laughs> um, it's definitely a good few weeks of prep and you know, lots of like bigging things up on social media as well, because that's part of what I do. Um, it's I feel like all of September and October, it's all I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. And what about you, Kat? Because you, you know, you obviously you're there as a creator as well. So it kind of, uh, it must like be slightly different prep for you, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the vast majority of the prep is just me getting my stock ready and printing because I, I print a lot of stuff myself that I sell. So printing prints that have run out and packaging things up. Um, 
in terms of Avery Hill, unless, like Sarah said, there's like an event, a panel or something that someone's on, it's mostly just doing some social media. And I may every year I make a map um, to post on social media where you can find the Avery Hill creators. Yes, Um, yeah. When I do a little one for myself, every a lot of people <laughs> do a little map, um, and it's just like tweeting images and trying to kind of show work so that people will hopefully come and find you. Yeah, is that like one of the the biggest things for for both of you? Really, is is getting the word out there about where you are? Like, what are some of the you know challenges as you know because as, as someone who's not a creator or you know a tabling basically, I I'm always fascinated by you know how some of the difficulties you must face like some of the challenges you you have to face when you come into things like this did you have anything like that at thought bubble or have you had anything generally like that in the past um i think for us this year the main problem we had was just running out of stock quite quickly um we were also kind of Mm. way far in the very bottom corner of the furthest hall so we were quite worried about uh people finding us so it was kind of this constant sense that i had to be on the on the phone doing tweets and I couldn't get service, so I couldn't post that many pictures. Yeah, yeah. And it felt like a silly thing to be worrying about, like my tweets. Um, but you <laughs> feel like you're going to sell everything that you've brought, and it did work out for us. I think because Liminal are doing a bit different, um, like the tarot decks and everything, that was really good for mm. us. But yeah, there was just this constant sense of, oh my god, what if it doesn't sell? Um, so just yeah. trying really hard to lure people in and get them to buy stuff. I saw um I saw so many people with those tarot decks. They yeah. I kept seeing them around and then I I've been looking on like Instagram and stuff afterwards at people posting their hauls like all the things that they got and yeah. like most of them have got one of those tarot decks. So, you know, it's it's obviously it's a great kind of problem to have, isn't it, running out of stock. It's a, it's a great yeah. and a terrible one at the same time. Like, you don't want it to happen, but at the same time you do want it to happen. That's why you're there, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. And just cuz I feel like I have to say it, we're talking about the Modern Witch tarot which just released. Yes. Um, um, yeah, it's nice to have something that people quite want and that people were coming up and being like, ooh, wow, pretty. And uh, you know, it's nice <laughs> feeling to be a part of that, although I'm not the creator and I don't have a huge amount of stakes in it. But yeah, I mean, I look after marketing. So when I see lots of people posting about it and getting really excited, it's like, yay, we actually have something great that people want. So it's a good feeling for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to know how both of you got involved in um, Avery Hill and just generally as kind of editors and marketers. So Kat, what came first with you? Were you Was it more the creative side of your work that led to that or was it working for Avery Hill and then that led to you being, you know, you know showcasing your work a bit more? Um, I was definitely making work first. Uh... I, I was a freelance illustrator for a good few years and then I wanted I decided I wanted to do more creative projects kind of self-initiated projects rather than client work um yeah. like make my own zine and stuff yeah um, so I was doing all that I self-published quite a few little zines and things and I got into going to the festivals and things and then um I was involved with quite a big project at one point with a friend of mine Amber Sue we created a an anthology called Tiny Pencil, which was really took off. Um, and I think Avery Hill might have found me through that. I can't, I'm not sure if they knew me beforehand, but um, yeah, they just really kind of liked that and they were watching what we were doing with it because it, it grew really fast. Um, and, you know, we started selling these uh, zines in the thousands and it was all like quite hectic and stressful <laughs> with a lot of them. But, um, 
I'd never, I'd, I ha- had no experience of like, no official experience of marketing apart from doing marketing my own work on, on social media. Yeah. But when, uh, when Ricky offered me the job, he kind of, I kind of said, well, I don't really know how to do marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it's just the stuff that you're already doing for Tiny Pencil and for your own stuff. So yeah, that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was there much of a, a feeling of difference to be like, oh, you know, does it, do you, because I get really embarrassed about promoting my own stuff I'm just like you know have a listen if you want to don't feel feel like you have to listen to it but like was that a big change for you to be able to you know market other people's work and push other people's work out there definitely that's a really good point because I love it I love marketing other people's stuff it's so much more fun than (laughs) marketing my own (laughs) like you say if you if you're emailing a reviewer about your own work it's kind of um awkward to say this is really good I think you'll like it Mm. but if it's someone else's book it's so easy to talk about it in kind of glowing terms (laughs) yeah yeah and it's just really really nice um I'm sure Sarah would agree when you kind of get a really lovely review coming in and you can share it with the the book's author Mm. it's just a really lovely thing oh yeah Yeah. coming through with good press it's a great feeling yeah, yeah. And what about you, Sarah? Then how did you kind of get involved in um, in marketing and uh, editing and marketing for, for Avery Hill? Um, so I, I guess I had a longer path. I mean, I studied creative writing and thought I was going to be a writer. And then I decided to move to England. And the only way I could do it was to get an MA, um, like a mm. student visa. So I, I decided to study publishing. I ended up working for quite a while at a book distributor called Turnaround, which is quite a big company, but an independent. And they do a huge number of graphic novels that they distribute to the book trade, um, including Avery Hill and people like Fantagraphics. And they even do Marvel comics and um, Kodansha and lots of great stuff. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of where I got my introduction to comics was when I started my career. And then um, after about five years running their marketing team, I I decided to move away from London for a while. We went down to Devon and I went freelance and I guess I probably started working for Liminal Eleven first. And because everyone in comics knows everyone in comics, they uh, linked with Avery Hill. Um, they were looking for a bit of extra kind of help. Um, we also share a sales manager between Avery Hill and Liminal. So it's all very like cozy, happy family. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think they wanted someone to look after the extra publicity and marketing kind of in tandem with Kat. We work really closely together. Um, so I started doing that like a year and a half ago. Um, yeah, I've been doing it ever since. That's a really good point about the comics community because I think that's why I love Thought Bubble so much as well because the the con is getting bigger and bigger every year. Um, I mean, this is the biggest it's ever been, I think. Um, but it still feels like a very small community, doesn't it? Like you you run into people, you see them like at their tables, and then you you know you see them walking about as well, and it's it's great to see people kind of in both in both forms like I, I you know sort people out at tables but then I'll just bump into them as they're walking around so it's obvious that they're fans as well you know and they're there to see other people as well and I know you were saying Sarah you were so busy you didn't get a chance to walk around as much uh yeah not hugely but I did actually I was noticing people who I used to see every year when I used to do uh, working at MCM at turnarounds table I'd be like oh you I've seen you at all these cons before even the huge ones uh-huh. in another city so you definitely yeah, start yeah. to realize it's a really close-knit kind of place. Um, I feel yeah. a bit like an outsider sometimes because I don't have that same, like I don't live and breathe comics in the same way a lot of the creators and reviewers do, but I've mm. been very welcomed anyway. Certainly at Thought Bubble I was. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think Thought Bubble is a perfect place for that as well, because there's, there's a, you know, it is, it is obviously comic and comic books and graphic novels, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of literary minds there as well. And a lot of people that, um, you know, kind of wear multiple hats, uh, creatively speaking. So I think it's, you know, you, you should feel perfectly at home because it's, it's, it's such a good environment for that, I think, rather than, bigger cons or like ones like MCM where it is more kind of comics and film based something mm. like thought bubble is very um is a very kind of well thoughtful <laughs> excuse the pun kind of a thoughtful place for for kind of creatives um as you said earlier small press as well is such a good good place for that isn't it yeah it was so much more kind of heavily geared towards like yeah smaller independent creators with i thought really good stories to tell much more kind of unique stuff so that was a really appealing yeah. place to be yeah. Did you, how have you found it, Kat, if you, if this is, um, this is kind of multiple years in a row you've been, or at least this isn't kind of your first, do you find it easier every time or do you find it more daunting as, you know, Thought Bubble is getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I have found it easier, I think, over time. Uh, I don't, I mean, for me, it is, it's a very long weekend and a very exhausting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, I think for a lot of people, as well who are quite introverted like me being in such a massive crowd for two days straight mm. and having to talk to people yeah non-stop. It's, it's hard work it's not kind of just like a fun weekend <laughs> um, so but yeah so part, I do I sometimes struggle just to get through the hours that you have to be there um mm. but yeah seeing people that you know and people really kind of boys your mood sometimes and I'd always just I've got better at bringing things to do if like if there's a quiet hour I bring some knitting and I just sit by my table <laughs> and get on with something because otherwise it can get a bit you know depressing if people are walking you know not not many people are walking around or yeah not many people are stopping you can kind of start to think oh god mm. so yeah just bring lots of stuff to do and um it's always nice chatting to the people on either side of you as well um, yeah so yeah but yeah, I do find it like a very, very tiring weekend. <laughs> there are so many people that felt exactly the same, whether it was people tabling or whether it was just people, you know, walking around and meeting people. But I felt exactly the same. Yeah, it feels strange to say as someone who, you know, does a podcast every two weeks and, you know, talks to people that I've never spoken to before most of the time. Um, but it is hard to kind of turn that on isn't it really and you are kind of flipping a switch or having to kind of flip a switch in your mind where you are out there and you're talking and especially for you people like you table people like <laughs> table people <laughs> you table people and the people that table for like for you to have to you know engage constantly like for, for me just walking around I can sit and have you know a break somewhere but you guys always have to be on don't you really and have to kind of sell things but, yeah um, I mean I, I think you really miss opportunities if you just sit back and, and kind of stare at your phone <laughs> yeah yeah um, so you're yeah you're always having to kind of meet make eye contact and smile at people and talk to them and um mm. it really does work you you know you have a nice chat with someone and they're much more likely to buy something from you if they don't know you who you are already um mm. But yeah, after eight hours, and then you have to do it again the next day. It's kind of, it's not eight, it's seven hours, I think. Yeah. But either way, I mean, that's quite a long time to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, your first graphic novel, Follow Me In, um, was, uh, you know, that was obviously something that you were promoting this thought bubble as well. Um, and it's um, described as part memoir and part coming of age story. Um, and 
you know, speaking of kind of being out there and putting yourself out there, that's, um, I mean, I, I, firstly, I've read it. I love it. I love following me. It's a, it's a wonderful book, but it's, it's, it's a very vulnerable piece as well. Um, how does that feel for you as your first graphic novel to be putting something out there that is, that is such a, such a part of you? Um, it, yeah, it is a, it is a little bit strange, but <laughs> I mean, I've always up until the book that I'm working on at the moment, um, which is a fiction book, finally, everything else I've done is, is generally been autobiographical. Hmm. So I did, I produced eight issues of a zine before I made my uh, book follow me in. Um, and pretty much all of that were different autobiographical stories. So I was kind of a little bit used to it. Yeah. Um, it's just the the kind of storytelling that that is easier for me. So it's um, it's very easy for me to think, oh, that was a funny story. That was something that happened to me. I'll make that into a comic rather than you know devising a whole plot and characters. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was the, it's the most straightforward kind of storytelling to do. But yeah, it's quite odd when you realise that you're kind of revealing that much about yourself. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you're chatting with someone and telling them about a holiday you went on and they're kind of like, yeah, I read all about it in your scene. <laughs> yeah, I know about <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> does, that, does that get easier for you in time, you know, being, putting yourself out there or is that something that you've always found? As you say, like you, you find it easier than writing fiction, um, but is it still an easy process for you to, to kind of reveal things about yourself in such a way? Um, yeah, I haven't struggled with it too much. I think I listen to a lot of um, American podcasts where people talk about their mental health very openly, yeah. like all kinds of stuff where people are really, really open. <laughs> and so maybe just because I listen to that kind of stuff all the time, um, I haven't found it too strange to, to talk about myself in my work. Yeah. It's just <laughs> hard to promote it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that is a big part of it, though, isn't it? Really, like the the culture behind this kind of work is definitely changing, and there's always been personal, um, you know, personal work out there. But I do think that the, you know, and I'm sure you both have um, opinions on this as as working with a publisher as well. But do you find that there is a lot more, um, a lot more personal work, a lot more unique stuff coming out now than there was, say, you know, five years ago? Um, I mean, I'm certainly more aware of it, and that might be just that I'm working more closely with independent publishers. But before, mm. I was so much more conscious of like the huge properties and like you know the big action things, Marvel and DC and Star Wars and so on. Um, working with Avery Hill, especially, you realize how much of it is extremely personal. A lot of what we've been promoting the past couple years is like you know quite open, like very much people's lived experiences, or feels very much like it's autobiographical in some way um mm. but i think people are much more open than they used to be just generally i think the world is kind of a tough place to be in so people are much more keen to talk about it i think what kat said as well like i think american culture is kind of taking over everything and we we tend to lay it all out there anyway <laughs> yeah 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 it's, it's not exactly or traditionally or stereotypically it's not really the british way is it um but at the same time, I do think that's that's an outdated kind of prospect now, and I do think um, you know younger people, especially, are are much more open about these things, and they're much more encouraged to be open about these things. Um, 
and I think books like this help books, you know, books that are personal and vulnerable than and show that someone else is going through potentially the same things you're going through or some someone has similar experiences to you or um you know, ways in which you can relate to books are very different now than you know, even when I was growing up, when I was just like, oh, yeah, this this kid that's been bitten by a spider, he's a lot like me. <laughs> you know, nowadays it's something a lot more different, isn't it? You know, you can actually find work that, you know, highlights issues that, that we all potentially suffer from but don't talk about. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a way of using art to connect and feel less alone, I guess. I mean, yeah. I quite like it because, like Kat, I like to listen to these really confessive sort of things. Um, yeah, so to, hear, to see other people's hearts on their sleeves, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do you, Kat, do you find it easier to, um, like the medium of graphic novels, is that something that you find appealing for this kind of work? Um, yeah, definitely. I, I've i always liked comics and I, I always wanted to make them. Um, but for a long time, my drawing style was, was kind of very, very realistic mm. and um I was illustrating children's books um, a lot and doing kind of myths and legends books and things like that, which suited a kind of realistic style. And I would look at comics and think, how how do people finish these? <laughs> and how on earth would I ever finish a comic if I, you know, I was drawing in this style? Yeah. So it, it involved a bit of changing the way I work to try and get a lot faster. Um, but I finally got there. I got to the point where I could draw a whole book so. <laughs> yeah well i i mean i i think your style's wonderful because i think it's it's very expressive and you get the point across but you i i know what you mean about kind of pairing it back like you it feels like you've distilled a style or you found a style for yourself that you know isn't this kind of hyper realized or hyper detailed but at the same time you're you are reaching into kind of the emotions that of the of the scene that you're trying to convey um, did it feel like a kind of a distillation of, of you know, trying to sit there and go, right, I, I don't need that, I don't need that. What I do need is this, this, and this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, and a little bit, I had to, as a as an illustrator in general, I had to get better at drawing backgrounds. <laughs> I don't know if this is a, a common thing, but um, I often did kind of spot illustrations, which is just one little scene or some characters, and there was wasn't a lot of need to fill in a background. So, doing like especially the travel book, yeah, having to do the landscapes and the buildings to kind of show what the places were like. Yeah, I had to get a lot better at doing that. But definitely with that, there's a case of you you have to look at it and think I can't include you know this entire cityscape with all the vehicles and all the trees and uh, you have to look at the scene and decide what is important to show and you know how you can actually make this book happen without going crazy yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that's the curse of of trying to recreate real places isn't it I suppose if you if you start making up your own places you can say yeah in 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 my world all the houses are wonky (laughs) and horses horses and cars the most difficult things to draw they just don't exist (laughs) everyone's on skateboards (laughs) Yeah. but then you look at do you, um some of Tilly Walden's work Tilly's uh, someone that we've published a few times with Avery Hill and she does create kind of these imaginary landscapes and she manages to pack in masses yeah and masses. she's just showing off um, yeah <laughs> she's just brilliant yeah she's, yeah she's amazing 
And so you, Sarah, you were saying that you didn't grow up reading comics. So this, this, um, you know, your job kind of brought you into the world of comics. How was that like transition? Well, how did that work for you? Did you did you fall into it quite naturally, picking up these books, or did you find it hard, kind of reading graphic novels? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I did come into comics quite late, but to be honest, it it happened because when I was working at this book distributor, and we get a huge quantity of new title information in every month, the things I was always like, oh, cool. It was always like the graphic novels, and quite a lot of them at the time would have been from people like Fantagraphics, who were doing like quite almost like art books as well as graphic novels. Um, yeah. from there I started becoming a lot more interested in kind of all of them. I did a lot of work on the the Marvel stuff and the Kodansha stuff. Um, and although I, I don't really read a huge amount of the action comics, I was just like, wow, there's these worlds are so rich and full and people want to keep coming back to them over and over again. I think mm-hmm. when I first started actually reading comics, I I was just going so fast. I wasn't taking in the art. And I imagine that happens to a lot of people who read a lot of books and are fast readers. Um, yeah. You kind of have to tell your mind to slow down and take it in. And especially now that I work with comic artists and know how long it can take to make that page. Um, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it for a good couple minutes before I turn it because there's so much going on in, in both the image and the words. Um, yeah, it took a while for me to get used to it. I mean, I, I wasn't ever like a snob about comics, but I was like, hmm, mm. this is unique and weird and new. Um, <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to, to get into like a, a, a flow of reading them regularly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm the same when it comes to noticing things. I think it's more now that I... Uh, talk on the regular to to creators and like whether it's uh you know artists or colorists or letterers i feel like i notice those things a lot more now that i've spoken to someone and you know so colorists the the amount of thought that goes into coloring a page is not just kind of sky blue grass green it is is very much like you know mood and atmosphere and and emotion and 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 just having that kind of depth of understanding does make you appreciate graphic novels a lot more and also makes you slow down <laughs> for sure definitely like read them a lot slower to try and appreciate every every kind of layer of it definitely i also think more than fiction like books or i mean graphic novels are books as well but you know what i mean i think yeah, no. they, they uh, warrant repeat reading more like more so than other types of books i definitely want to come back to them because you can pick up new things every time mm, yeah well, that's a good segue, really, to talk about um, the uh, books that you'd like to talk about today. Um, and Sarah, we'll start with you because the book that you've chosen to talk about is, uh, you were saying it was one of the first books that um, kind of changed your mind about or made you realise what the medium was capable of. Um, I have brought My Favourite Thing is Monsters by M.L. Ferris, which I think it was Fantagraphics who published it in, a couple of years ago. Yeah. I think before I actually saw that book physically, and it was quite a long wait because I remember it was delayed by months and there was a distribution issue. But when I saw it, I was like, this isn't just words and pictures or like people with little speech bubbles. Like, I don't know if you've actually seen the book, but I recommend you pick it up if you haven't. Mm. It's got such a warmth and there's so much going on. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great story, but it's basically looks like kind of a, a girl has drawn it all in her notebook. I mean, I think it probably was hand drawn on grid paper. And yeah. yeah, it was just like, wow, this medium is kind of a sum greater than its parts. Like it's not words, it's not pictures. It's this amazing combination of storytelling. 
um, that's what that book did for me for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know what you mean about picking it up for the first time as well, because it's, it is a huge book, isn't it? It's a lot bigger than I was expecting it to be. Um, I picked it up last, uh, last year's Thought Bubble, actually, um, funnily enough. Um, and I'd seen it online a lot. I'd seen snippets from it and thought, oh, this, you know, this looks like entirely unique um, and entirely kind of a special work. And um, when I went to pick it up, like not only is it like bigger than the average, but it's it's hefty as well, isn't it? Like there is a lot of, there's a lot of content there. Yeah, I believe the word is chonky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an appropriate word for it, yeah. <laughs> I think it was a real labor of love. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know the creator, obviously, but I think it took her a good few years to make. And I, I think there's due to be a second volume, but I imagine it would take a good few years to create again because it's just, um, it's a beautiful thing with so much happening. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a second book coming out. I think it was when the first one came out, I think they said, oh, the second one's coming next year. And I remember thinking, unless she's unless she's already nearly finished it there's no way you know it's it's it is just as you say it's a labor of love and there's it's a lot it's quite labor intensive i imagine the style that she's gone for as well um which you mentioned briefly but it's you know it it is all um like biro isn't it it looks like um and a lot of it is just meant to emulate a a journal or a notebook or a scrapbook that this the main character is is writing in as she kind of uncovers this world around her that you know may or may not be as real as as it as it's being portrayed to be but at the same time it is like there's a there's a deeper story around the everyday life that she's surrounded by isn't there yeah it's a really it's a fun mystery story i mean it's got a bit of everything because it's got the kind of teen paranormal elements um but there's also Mm. this kind of Uh, family mystery and like something's not as it seems which is always fun to have a bit of suspense and you know she's quite a social outcast and her big brother is too and I don't know I identified a lot with the characters um but yeah I think honestly my favorite thing about it was I mean just the production and the the kind of grid paper backgrounds and it looks like it's done with biro and colored pencils just that kind of warmth and I guess it's probably you know we have so much digital stuff these days it felt very like real like I was holding a a teenage girl's notebook so I loved that about it yeah yeah Kat have you have you read it have you seen seen the book um I haven't read it I I really want to um and I haven't got around to it yet but I was quite excited that Sarah said she was going to be talking about that one because um I'm giving a talk at an event tomorrow and ML Ferris is going to be talking as well. Oh, wow. Via Skype, I think, from America. Um, and now I really wish that I'd read it. Because <laughs> I would, um, but I'm sure, I'll, you know, it'll be interesting to hear her speak about it tomorrow and find out about the next one that's coming as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I've seen, I've seen the artwork online and it, it does look incredible. Yeah, I think it was up in a lot of the same award categories last year with Tilly Walden's On a Sunbeam, which we published at Avery Hill. Um, And it was, I think, in a lot of, at least a few cases, my favorite thing is Monsters 1. And it was hard to be disappointed because, you know, such a worthy contender. Both of those were amazing graphic novels out that year. And yeah, they definitely stand well side by side. Yeah, it is. It is unfortunate that it is. It is far too chunky to read in like kind of one evening (laughs) to be able to kind of like cram for tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's um, two days you really want to savor it yeah 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 i won't try and read it before <laughs> <laughs> i think um it's a great book to highlight what we've been talking about as well though the idea that 
um, you know, comics or graphic novels are just a a different way to tell a story. Um, and what Emil Ferris does with my favorite thing is monsters is is brings the the structure and the actual form and the medium itself into the story. Um, so the actual the actual book itself, the story being told, is not only kind of enhanced by the fact that it is a graphic novel, but it's also um, vital or crucial to the story itself, to understanding and emoting and kind of relating to the story in the fact that it is it is drawn in this way, it is released. You know, even the spine of the book itself looks like um, many kind of notebooks stacked on top of each other. So even before you've turned a page, you are drawn into this kind of realised fiction that this is this is someone's work that you're holding. Um, and it's it's rare for books to, it's rare for graphic novels to actually highlight the fact that you are reading someone's work as opposed to just being absorbed in the story um and i think that's kind of what you were what you were talking about wasn't it sarah the the idea that this this showed you what the medium is capable of oh yeah definitely and yeah as you say that it was clearly like someone has made this with their blood sweat tears and pens um Mm. yeah definitely I, i like that kind of thing that sort of raw like connection to the artist anyway but uh, definitely, uh, and the fact that it's just a beautiful object, the book itself, um, that lends a lot yeah. of you know, goodness to it. Yeah, yeah. As someone who loves putting things on shelves and just admiring them, <laughs> I'm like a big fan <laughs> of my favourite thing is monsters. It does hold a prominent position, yeah. I love um, examples like that of really clever book design as well, where, I mean, the designer, the the creator hasn't just thought, okay, I need to put something on the spine, I'll just put the title <laughs> yeah, down there. Yeah, yeah. They've thought about the whole the whole object and kind of worked in these really clever ways to make it kind of have all these different dimensions. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what I've what first drew me to the book is the as as we were saying, you know, the idea of the design of it and how how it kind of draws you in. Um, but a lot of the time, when I've got creators on the show or when I've, I'm interviewing creators, I'll say um, what you know what made graphic novels or the graphic novel format the the chosen you know why is this perfect for telling your story and um and with emil farris and with my favorite thing is monsters there there is no other way really of telling this story uh, because i think it's such a uh, as i said like such a vital part of the story to have this kind of book in your hands and to have this um this child's drawings or you know pretend pretend to be a child like the her kind of drawings and scribblings um be part of the story itself it's 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 brilliant the way it's been done but yeah no yeah it's a really good book and and sarah you were saying you wanted to talk about jim woodring as well and your love of jim woodring <laughs> well i don't have to say too much just that um, <laughs> it was hard to try and pick the graphic novel that sort of meant the most to me and i went with mm. emil ferris because that was like the first one i really encountered but um, I just have such an affinity for Jim Woodring because of um, the book Congress of the Animals, which I actually have an Italian edition of because I lost oh, my wow. English one. So it's called Il Congresso degli Animali. <laughs> I don't know. I won't say too much. I just think he's wonderful. He's got such a lovely, shaky line. And yeah, I think I've talked enough about my favorite comics, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love Jim Woodring. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, okay then, Kat, what's um, what's the book that you've brought with you to talk about? Um, I'm going to talk about um, Hate by Peter Bagg, um, 
which yeah it's um similar to Sarah in that it kind of I had that that moment of kind of going oh and realizing what comics could be um when I first read hate Mm. um so I was a teenager and I had a friend who was really into comics who um was a little bit older than me who lent me hate and a bunch of other kind of graphic novels and I'd I'd sort of grown up reading stuff like the Beano and things and um and I wasn't I I always I guess I associated comics with superheroes and I was that I never really responded to those kind of stories particularly um so some of the other graphic novels that this friend lent me were Watchmen and V for Vendetta and stuff which are great um and I read them and I thought this is great but when I read Hate I kind of had this revelation of of oh comics can be about super mundane everyday matters as well (laughs) and um, they don't have to be these kind of huge action stories um because I had seen I'd seen comics that dealt with everyday life before but they tended to be things like um comic strips like in newspapers and stuff and that was the first one which was a long form thing um and it almost, I, I think it almost celebrates the mundane. There are all these scenes of people just like watching TV or on the phone for pages and pages. Mm. <laughs> um, but the, art, the art style is so cool that it's still kind of really fun to read. Um, and I've just, I've just got a real affinity for everyday stories. I like stuff that's set in the real world. And I'm kind of interested in that distinction because I think some people like to read stuff and see their own lives reflected in it. And some people like to read to for escapism and they want to read stuff that's completely unreal. Mm. And I, I very much fall into the first group where I love stuff that's kind of about everyday life. Um, and I would just, I think at the time I was reading hate, I was the same age as the characters. I was in a lot of the same predicaments and it just really kind of uh, entertained me and made me think, Oh, these are the kind of comics that I want to make myself. Yeah. And what I, uh, because I'm, I'm convinced that I read a few of these at the time when they were when they were coming out as well. Um, but mm-hmm. I had to look up when you when you said these are the ones you wanted to read. I had to look them up, and I did kind of get a, you know, when you get like a thing in the back of your head that's like I've seen this before, you know, <laughs> whether it's like in more mm-hmm. modern shops yeah. or anything. But what I what I love about them is the they do they do bridge the gap don't they really for for i imagine for someone like you at the time when you were just used to the beano and and kind of comic strips really and then the other end of that scale is obviously you know the the high end things like watchmen and v for vendetta i feel like this is a good middle ground really because it does have um does have exaggerated kind of comic strippy kind of art style but the actual mm. the 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 context underneath is could not be more as you said could not be more real could not be more um you know seemingly mundane activities um and it's a great kind of juxtaposition between the two isn't it you know being able to to bridge that gap between the two kind of styles yeah it's it is a really wacky kind of art style it's quite it's quite recognizable and unique um I love the way he draws facial expressions because <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> Buddy Bradley is such a kind of rageful <laughs> character. So when he goes into his rages, he just so brilliantly drawn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, these kind of weird bendy lines, it's, it's just really, I think it's really beautifully drawn. Um, and also at the time I was living in, Bri- I was a teenager in Brighton. Mm. Um, and I think there's probably some parallels between Brighton and Seattle where the first half of hate is set. Mm. With kind of like 
you know, hipsters and people in bands and druggies and, you know, music scene and stuff. So I was definitely around people that were kind of like the people in the books. And it's that stage of your life of kind of moving out of home and having a crappy job and, you know, getting into ill-advised relationships <laughs> and things. So I, I was just really loving it because I could, I, I just thought it was kind of, it's probably quite of its time actually. Um, but I don't know, I think I just read it at the right moment for me yeah. to really relate. I think that's the key to certainly key to works like this because this is um I had uh Cena Grace on the show uh previously and he his his pick was Ghost World um and that reminded mm. me of this in that way in the sense that it is very it's of its time but also deals with very universally relatable things doesn't it and um yeah and i think this is that kind of book like hate like ghost world could only come out in the 90s the way it did but at the same time mm. you know if you were reading that at the time if that was the if that was um a formative kind of reading experience for you then that that would that would perfectly align with you as as you said like a teenager at the time that would perfectly align with your kind of sentiments wouldn't it and it would i can imagine it having that effect on you yeah, and the it's the other thing it's got um, in common with Ghost World is something that I I really love, which are kind of flawed characters mm. um, and characters who make terrible decisions and behave really badly and stuff. Um, I really enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like ugly characters as well, isn't yeah. it? Really, not just physically, but kind of you know their attitudes as well aren't aren't necessarily you know you're not seeing them saving the day you're not seeing them as you know brightly colored superheroes you're seeing them as being normal people which means messing up which means making mistakes and and being bad sometimes and being good other times yeah definitely i i love that i'm always a bit disappointed when people complain that you know they didn't like anyone in the book or you know they <laughs> they couldn't relate to any of the characters and they were horrible people and i'm kind of like yeah. isn't that more interesting <laughs> <laughs> I just like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you have much experience with these, Sarah? Like, um, I, I mean, at the time, I imagine not because you were saying you you came to comics quite late. But have you have you revisited these kind of underground um, books? Um, yeah, a bit. I think I was definitely both too young and probably too sheltered living in Missouri to know about Peter Bag at the time. <laughs> um, but I mean, I'm familiar with his work. When when Cat said his name, I immediately thought of like a mouth taking up the whole front of a screen uh, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it yeah I think that was my memory of it as well yeah um but yeah I I'm um, again probably through my work at the book distributor I was a bit familiar with some of the underground kind of older comics we worked with like Knockabout who recently did a Freak Brothers compendium and I've read that mm. um I had quite a, a sheltered sort of normie upbringing, so it's been fun revisiting kind of the underground as an adult and being like, oh, wow, people are weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as I used to be, but like, you know, I kind of missed out on all this stuff. My parents were pretty straight-laced, whereas like my father-in-law was getting into all that stuff and loved the underground comic scene. He's got a good collection, so I've had a look through some of that. I don't know. I think there's a need for that uh, countercultural kind of mindset. I think comics have always been really good at doing that because it's always been seen as, you know, people aren't always paying as much attention to them. So you can kind of get away with more, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's not 
a medium that has been taken seriously in the past. So I think people have taken that idea and run with it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's a really good idea. And I think the, what I, I mean, I'm, I feel exactly the same as you. I led a very sheltered life. This is, these books are not something that I kind of came to. And I think if I had picked them up when I was like that age, I think I probably would have been put off by like the like the huge mouths and then they're kind of like this is too real <laughs> take me back to the guy bit by a spider <laughs> um but i think i think that's definitely like counterculture is definitely a um a, a genre of, of comics that fascinates me because it is by its very nature like anything goes isn't it and like the things that they got away with in these kind of zines and and underground press and these these things that were you know very limited very minimal exposure but at the same time reached so many people um and touched so many people and stayed with them to the point where you know fantagraphics and drawn quarterly and, and other publishers do you know publish regularly these kind of compendiums of these works so they do still have an audience out there don't they yeah, definitely. I think there's still an appetite. I mean, not just that, that people are nostalgic, but I think, you know, there's still relevance. I mean, admittedly, a lot of the underground stuff was just horrifically sexist, but oh, God, there yeah. was also a lot of amazing humor. And I think also it was a time in the culture where we needed to challenge kind of deference to authority and all of these types of things. So mm. I think it was, yeah, there's still a relevance. I think people are still hungry for something that sticks its middle finger up in the air. Yeah, yeah. It's just and very I, fun, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and as you said, Kat, it kind of led to you, I imagine this was quite formative for you, then led to you being the the kind of honest and, and open kind of creator that you are now, really, you know, with the with the work that you do. Yeah, yeah. It just sort of reassured me that I could write about um, that kind of subject matter and still make mm. it interesting um, and that I wouldn't need, like, um, car chases and things in my comics. You could have yeah. mouths taking up the page and still get your point yeah. across. <laughs> yeah, but I really, I really do love the little that he, just the little kind of details of um, people's. I don't know the settings and the shops and people's houses and just he put so much so much kind of texture into the everyday life setting that I think it's. I don't know. It's just really great. Hmm. well um that's all the questions i've got for you both thank you so much for joining me it's been fascinating getting to know you uh through the comics that you love and uh and through the work that you do um but um but yeah no this has been great thank you thank you yeah thanks Matt. it's been a pleasure that's the issue is part of the multiversity comics podcast network you can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. The show is on Twitter, at That's The Issue, and I'm on there too, at Matt Loon. Finally, you can contact the show via email at that'stheissuepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 